This episode is sponsored by World History Encyclopedia, one of the top history websites on the internet. I love the fact they're not a wiki. Every article they publish is reviewed by the editorial team, not only for being accurate, but also for being interesting to read. The website is run as a non-profit organization, so you won't be bombarded by annoying ads and is completely free. It's a great site, and don't just take my word for it, they've been recommended by many academic institutions, including Oxford University. Go check them out at worldhistory.org, or follow the link in the episode description. On the 3rd of January, 1896, German monarch Kaiser Wilhelm II sent a telegram to Paul Kruger, president of the Transvaal Republic. Kruger's forces had just successfully repelled an attack launched by 500 British colonists under the command of Leander Starr Jameson. News of the telegram caused alarm in England, where preparations began for what seemed like an inevitable conflict with the Dutch South Africans known as the Boers. But it also put Germany and Wilhelm on the map as potential adversaries of the powerful British Empire. What followed was a bloody conflict that set in motion the events that would lead to the creation of the Republic of South Africa and the instigation of apartheid. Yesterday evening, I met with Mr. Mandela in Cape Town. During the meeting, Mr. Mandela was informed of the government's decision regarding his release. Further afield, the conflict would have echoes in Ireland with the independence movement, the clash between Britain and Germany in World War I, the concentration camps of World War II, and ultimately the end colonialism in Africa. Growth of national consciousness in Africa is a political fact and we must accept it as such. In this episode, I examine the Second Boer War and speak with South African historian Desmond Latham, whose projects include the Anglo-Boer War podcast. We speak about the war, its causes and its lasting legacy. On the 25th of March, 1647, the Dutch ship, the New Harlem, crashed just off the coast of South Africa. Half of the crew made their way back to the Netherlands on other vessels, but 62 men were left behind. They were forced to fend for themselves in unfamiliar territory with just the provisions they were able to salvage from the stricken vessel. Remarkably, the men thrived thanks to an abundant supply of fresh water, fertile soil, and benevolent natives from whom they acquired meat. The Dutch East India Company, or VOC, saw the value in establishing a permanent settlement on what became known as the Cape of Good Hope, from where their fleet could pick up provisions en route to Asia. In 1652, 90 Dutch settlers, led by Jan van Riebeek, established a base at what would eventually become known as Cape Town. 
In the late 18th century, with France having conquered the Netherlands, the British decided to take control of the strategically important Cape to prevent it from falling into French hands. When the Napoleon Wars ended, Britain formally added this region of the southern African continent to its empire, and British settlers began to arrive. But despite the newly arrived British and the Boers, both being nominally Protestant North Europeans, there were substantial differences between these two groups, as historian Des Latham explains. They instituted what the British do, an empire. And uh, as you can see with Australia and even the US, they export a lot of their populations into these entities. The idea was to move people with some means into the colonies to run them for them. And the British arrived with an idea of expectation of administration. So the settlers that arrived in the 1820s were nearly 200 years after the Dutch. And they had the similar color skin, which people here call pink or red rather than white. Another traditional commentary on the ground amongst the Koza and the other people, the Khoikhoi. That's how they refer to people from Europe as red because they were sunburnt. There was a huge difference. I mean, the language for starts that had merged from Dutch and begun to pick up some local phrases as well as phrases from Asia. Afrikaans emerged as a language probably late 1700s. And the culture of it was amongst the Trek Boers, which means the traveling farmers, was very much independent. Whereas the British settler that arrived in the 1820s was steeped in the kind of management principle around England of town management, communities operating in harmony or not, but at least together. The Dutch and the Trek Boers had very little community ethos. They came together largely when they needed to fight. Um, otherwise, they fought a lot in, amongst each other farmer to farmer, and these were huge farms, three, four, five, six thousand acres and more. And when they got together, normally it was to fight off some external threat. But of course, they would then compete with each other for resources on the landscape. So they had a much more of a fractured approach to operating as an entity, whereas the English and the English speaker relied on government, on controlled bureaucracy and so on. So that was the main difference between the two. And the Trek was integrated more effectively in the, at least until the 1750s, 1760s, with Africans, they married uh, Khoi and black women. There were not many white women. They created a whole group of people called the Bastards, which is a pejorative now, but they, at the time, they regard themselves as, as empowered. And Khalids, which is, again, a South African phrase, which is not well recognized and well received worldwide, but South Africans who are mixed race call themselves Khalid quite happily here. Emerging from there, the English reinforced the principle of separateness. There's a huge difference between the two, massive. Eager to maintain their way of life away from British dominion, over the next few decades, the Boers moved further inland. This brought them into conflict with more native tribes, including the Petty. Initially, the British were quite content for the Boers to form their own societies, but the situation began to change when diamond deposits were found deep inside Boer territory in 1867. A decade later, the British annexed the Transvaal Republic in violation of earlier treaties. The idea was to create a federation of states similar conceptually to the confederation in Canada, but the British faced fierce opposition from the Zulus, and then in 1880, the Boers revolted and regained their independence. Paul Kruger a Calvinist farmer known for his casual dress and from a British perspective, his bad manners, became the president 
of the newly liberated Boers. But the discovery of gold within his territory drew British fortune seekers to the region. The puritanical, politically libertarian Boers were ill at ease around the decadent yet nationalistic interlopers. Cecil Rhodes, a British mining magnate and politician, inspired the Jameson raid without authorization from London. The Boers repelled the attack, and it was this victory that inspired the controversial telegram of congratulation from Kaiser Wilhelm II to Paul Kruger. By this time, Germany had established a colony in what is now known as Namibia. Its imperial commissioner spoke Dutch fluently, making relations with the Boers easier. His name was Heinrich Goering, and 50 years later his son Hermann would stand trial as a Nazi leader at Nuremberg. I've read reports that the British were concerned about colonial powers such as Portugal, France and Belgium moving into territory close to South Africa, but it seems as if the Germans were perceived as the most threatening. Was there a legitimate sense of fraternity and the potential of an alliance between the Germans and the Boers? Or, with his telegram and other actions, was Kaiser Wilhelm simply trying to rock the boat and effectively poke the British in the eye? Bit of both, but there was a real solidarity as well. The language, Dutch language, is closer to the German language than to the English language. And the culture of the time and the politics of the time meant that the Germans for some time had been discussing with Kruger and the other leadership in the Transvaal Republic and the Free State some kind of close assimilation. So one of the first things they did was to export thousands of Mauses, which was the latest German weapon, to basically a third world country. The similar thing now would be America exporting not just the HIMARS to Ukraine, but their uh, F-16s and the 22s and the other advanced jet. The Boers were seen as not just useful to poke the English in the eye with, which they were too, but they were actually of us in many ways. And there was a close affiliation, which extended and continued to extend all the way past the Boer War into uh, the First World War. There was a rebellion in South Africa in 1914 as the government of the day, which ironically was led by former Boer War generals, who were Boers, who became supportive of the British, Louis Wouter and Jan Smuts, who then had to fight their own erstwhile colleagues in a rebellion that killed tens of thousands and ended up with Jan Smuts and Louis Wouter fighting. And, and Wouter chased the rebels and the Germans all the way into northern German Southwest Africa. It was more than just a support of a nation. There was a real a sentiment. There were German, many German soldiers fighting in a freelance capacity for the Boers but none for the British. You know, a few hundred Germans came to fight for the Boers against the English. So you can see that it's, it wasn't just a politically expedient support for the Boers. There was a sentiment uh, that was then carried through all the way to the Second World War when the hardcore Boers at the time, who were really neo-Nazis, went off from South Africa to join the Nazi regime and fight for them as Afrikaans-speaking German sympathetic South Africans. After the Jameson raid, Alfred Milner was appointed as the High Commissioner for South Africa and Governor of the Cape Colony. He saw no hope for peace with British citizens lacking the rights that Boers had in the Transvaal. But negotiations continued between the British and Paul Kruger until a conference in Bloemfontein ended abruptly as neither Milner nor Kruger 
would make concessions. The Boers then made an ultimatum for British troops to withdraw from around the Transvaal before launching a preemptive strike on the 12th of October 1899. So Des, Alfred Milner was a guy from the Revenue Service who made his name in Egypt where he went to fix a troubled economy. And it strikes me that here we have South Africa, you have problems, you have new deposits of gold. Was he hawkish on the war because he was looking at the money and specifically thinking how the gold could help the British Empire? He was an imperialist first, so I think the money was secondary. And his aim was not here, here in South Africa was not to reinforce the opinion of the British ruling class, it was all the financial class, it was to reinforce the empire. So that's first Alfred Milner, or Sir Alfred Milner as he became known, was steeped in the tradition of the time and that was his overarching ambition. He realized that the gold could fund rehabilitation of the country after the Boer War ended. So one of the few things that motivated him was his relationship with Cecil John Rhodes, firstly, but he also was very much his own man. So Rhodes repeatedly tried to bend Milner to his rule and Milner would not bend because he was a company man, so to speak, in terms of being an imperialist first. He created a separate system in the Cape called Milner's Men. Basically, it was a team of youths. They were kind of despised, I guess, by some of the other officials at the time. But he strongly believed in an empire first and he built an entire administration based on that, that was separate from the financiers. So for him, the gold and the diamonds in Southern Africa were really tools to use after a war to rebuild the nation rather than at the heart of why he wanted the nation. He believed in Southern Africa as an important point. He did not think South Africa was important in itself. India was the most important thing. And South Africa, the Suez Canal was one route, but the most important for the British still was controlling the Southern access to this valuable entity called India, because of course, the French and the control over the Suez, the Middle East was unstable, and the British used their fleet to great advantage at that time. So it was a stepping stone into India for him. It wasn't really that he saw the gold itself, and as an empire building reason, he saw it as part of the tools you could use to reinforce the empire. And India for him is much more important than South Africa. Despite years of discussion about possible conflict, when the trouble began, the British were woefully ill-prepared, and the South African Boers initially made huge inroads into the British-held territory. How were the Boers, who you've described as being farmers, people who live in remote areas, didn't necessarily have a strong, structured community, able to be so effective in combat with what, at that point in time, was the world's greatest military power? You know, you need to know landscape geography first. And that was the truth of the Boers because they'd lived on the land for centuries by the time the British arrived. Um, it was very hard to dislodge them and their knowledge. They could live on the land. The Boers were really of the landscape and the British were external to the land. And that's firstly, that has to be said. Secondly, the Boers used particularly tough little ponies, whereas the British imported most of their horses from America and from Arabia, Australia, Argentina. These were larger horses, they ate more and they, they couldn't really survive on some of the things that these ponies, the Boer pony it was called, could. The Boer ponies could eat just about anything on the landscape, whereas the horses that arrived were oats and hay, a certain kind of hay that were fed. The actual logistics, the Boers are much better at running and living on the felt. Secondly, the Boers understood 
the strong points of the film. They had a understanding about tactical issues. Many were farmers, many could shoot straight. A bit of a myth that all the Boers could shoot well and none of the British. Um, the reality was that many of the Boers were actually clerks and from the towns and couldn't shoot anything as well as the British, just that they very quickly had to deal with the tactics. And the tactic was to stand off from the British and shoot at them and then leave when the, uh, the cavalry charged or something. So they'd stay alive, live to fight another day. So even from the start of the war, the battles were really almost guerrilla battles, understanding that they couldn't take casualties because there was so small 50,000 on the ground versus hundreds of thousands British fighting against them, up to half a million eventually in South Africa. They had a capacity to understand the geography, the landscape. They were of the landscape. The animals that they used, uh, and everyone rode horses those days, um, were better equipped, uh, could operate more effectively on less food. Uh, were more hardy, they died less of diseases and so on. I mean, many, many other reasons, thankfully and strategically, but that's in essence the main overarching region. As in many conflicts, including the Spanish Civil War and more recently the war in Ukraine, the Boer War attracted sympathetic figures from around the world, many of whom were eager to fight the British. We talked about how the Boers were so successful initially, at least, in battle. But once you had professional soldiers coming in from all around the world, some of whom presumably didn't even speak the same language, logistically, did this create any problems for the Boers militarily? It did create problems. The Italians, for example, were a problem for the Boers because they were looting at high levels. So they created a backlash amongst their own people. The French... They were so hateful of the English that they were quite hard to manage on the felt. And La Real, which is a famous French commander who fought here, a real hero amongst the Boers, was also very high-minded when it came to what he believed should be done on the battlefield. So you had a conflict there between the expectations of the Boers and how to fight a war. The Europeans who fought for the Boers really did battle with the Boers' approach to discipline. The Boers were anarchic. That if they didn't feel like fighting as a group of men, they just wouldn't turn out. If the officer ordered them to fight, they'd say no, and that was that. And they wouldn't be shot at dawn or anything. The Europeans were shocked by that attitude. The Boers had a real democracy built into their systems where the men would decide and the officer would lead. It wasn't the other way around. And you can imagine the French arriving from their history. The Russians in particular battled with this. The second thing was that they tended to fight in a non-Boer way. So the Scandinavians, for example, they were almost wiped out. There was a 50-large company of Scandinavians who fought at Marcusfontein, which is a battle near Kimberley, which was the diamond mining town. So the British were approaching Kimberley, and one of the companies that fought against the British there was Scandinavians. Of 50, only seven walked out because they were just going to fight till the end. And the Boers were shocked because that's not how Boers fight. You know, they fight until they know they've been defeated, then run away because they can fight tomorrow. And there are not enough of them to fight. So you don't want to all die because you're just wasting your time. There was that kind of culture of the honor code, which the Boers had a slightly different honor code. Their honor code was to themselves and their farms. If they were going to die, their wives and children are going to die. So they always thought about survival first, which to the British looked like a lack of courage. But it wasn't, of course. It was an understanding of how tactics work for you over the long term. It's true that the Boers and the French in particular were quite shocked. And the Russians, again, were shocked at how the Boers reacted to a cavalry charge. The Boers were seriously did not like British cavalry. They were actually afraid of them. 
And so when they saw the cavalry form up to charge, the Boers would stop fighting and leave a lot of the time. They wouldn't carry on fighting. And the British cavalry caused a lot of uh, massacres after battles because the Boers would cut and run. There was a capacity that the Europeans had for discipline that the Boers did not have. The European-based fighter had a problem understanding the motivation of the Boers. You know, you need to stand up for your people. And the Boers would say, well, then my people are this clan living in that part of South Africa, not that clan living over there who happened to speak this language. That kind of fractured understanding, clan-based thing was, was really shocking. But I must tell you, one of the other things that's not well known about international fighters here, Boer War is one of the few in the world ever that Americans have actually fought Americans. And it was the effect of the Civil War that caused this. So in Mordefontein and Marcus Fontaine, the Americans, there were a handful fighting for the Boers, um, who were Irish Americans largely, because they hated the English, were actually seeking out fellow Americans on the British side to kill them, and vice versa. They heard about each other on the battlefield. And the effect of the Civil War and also the anti-British feeling amongst the Irish Americans drove that. And it's not well known. It was not in huge numbers, but it was one of the few wars where Americans actually physically fought each other and killed each other. And we're talking about a, probably a couple of dozen in total. So it's not a huge number, but the actual sentiment itself is extraordinary, really. The darkest aspect of the Boer War relates to the British scorched earth policies that saw them destroying farms, denying people access to their food and rounding people up into concentration camps where thousands died in terrible conditions. And years later, obviously, this concentration camp idea we saw on an even larger and even more horrific scale in Germany. Was this at the time, these types of tactics viewed as legitimate military maneuvers? Or was this something that happened in isolation and somehow just spiraled out of control because once they'd gone down this road, there was no end game and no ultimate plan of what the next stage of the conflict would be. Frustration. The British had spent a year fighting these people who were being supported by their own people. And South Africa is vast, the same size as Texas, basically. And so the British could not control the territory. And each time it was whack-a-mole, they would act in a certain area. Then the Boers would move to another and continuously be supplied by their own people. But more importantly, I think it has to be said, most of the Boers' food actually came from trading with black tribes at the time, not just their own people, which is not a well-known fact. The British eventually had to, in their minds, stop the logistic supply, and that was taking out the farms. But it backfired on them to some extent because it put the women and children into disease-ridden poor hygiene facilities that killed tens of thousands, killed more than died than Boers, and the Boers lost their soldiers. And black and white, about more black um, South Africans died in those concentration camps than white. So it backfired because the hardliners became more hardline. And at that stage, the hardliners were the ones fighting. Yes, 20,000 or so Boers did respond to the first proclamation in March 1900, where Roberts issued a proclamation saying that Boers can lay down their arms free to return. The Boers attacked the British railway lines because that was their logistics source. The British did everything on the railway lines, so the Boers just targeted these railway lines. Then in June of that year, Lord Roberts, who was the British commander, he said that for every railway line was destroyed, all the farms in the area would be burnt. And when Kitchener came and, and took over that policy by November, they were just burning everything they could find. So it was kind of like a, a frustration level 
The British soldier and officers hated it, by the way. They were constantly ashamed by the actions. It wasn't a simple thing that you saw in, say, Barbarossa, where many of the Germans, you know, the SS in particular, actively did it, destroyed Russia and enjoyed doing it. The average British troop was ashamed by the actions. And that created a lot of morale problems for the British, where they no longer saw themselves as fighting in the felt for the Queen Victoria, doing the right things for our nation. They saw themselves as, as oppressors who were killing women and children. So it backfired, I think. And it's a typical situation where an army comes in, as Napoleon found in Russia, an army comes in to seize the high ground, finds themselves hated by everyone. The only people who didn't hate them fully were, were many of the black South Africans who saw the British as more liberal than the Afrikaners. So there was quite a close relationship at times between some of those groups, the Zulu, the Sutu, and so on, with the British, but not totally, not always. So the Scorchers policy was a short-term method that turned into a long-term solution that wasn't the solution. And it partly caused English politics to change. The Labour Party kind of launched itself there in England. Emily Hobhouse was famous as a humanitarian, and she began to expose these concentration camps. And then one of the ironies for me is that in 1937 or 8, that the German ambassador was called in in London to explain himself because Jews were being rounded up and put in these camps, and it wasn't quite the concentration camp we know now. And the German response to the British was, you started this with the Boers. You know, the resonance of this moment is quite significant then in terms of what a camp is and what it does. It had been used by the Americans, for example, in Cuba. They'd used it in the fight and also in the Philippines, but not in the same way that the British did, where they kind of turned a blind eye. And secondly, the camps were run by military men who were completely useless at running systems, really, especially civilian systems. There was a, a real frustration that built up with the British. They'd march around, they cordoned off the felt into these massive, almost like chess blocks in terms of the maps, and then march into these blocks and try and clean them. And then when they'd leave, the boys would move back into them. So you can understand the frustration built up over time where the military people just thought, okay, we have a force of arms, so why don't we take the next step, which is to force ourselves on the civilian population, throw them into these concentration camps. By the time the Boers found out that their children were dying of starvation and disease in these camps, what did they have to go back to? They would monitor these camps quite closely. In fact, they had really good spying systems where they'd go in and out of the camps. Sometimes the men would actually see their wives and leave. They were highly aware of what was going on of the death rate. The English speaker in South Africa was not, and particularly in Europe, in Britain, where it was kept away from the public at first until the Hobhouse spoke up about it. So that was the irony here is that the Boers were highly aware and the British soldier was aware and the management in terms of the camps were aware, but politically the leadership of the UK kept it away as much as possible from the electorate until Hobhouse's publications in, for example, Times newspaper and others began to take it more seriously. And when the first commission sent to investigate was really a commission of imperialists, the leader was a woman whose husband was in the army. It kind of was a wishy-washy report that blamed the Boers for their bad hygiene. The irony was the Boers, the women and children who were living on the felt at the time were, qu were quite happy to do that because they'd grown up on the felt, many of them. So they were on these wagons. They were predated on at times by black groups and so on, but mostly not. Now, the women who arrive and with some minders who were black, the workers with her were all black, and her children. And they were often supported because they could afford to do it and also because there was a sympathy for them amongst the, some of the black groups that they moved across and would then live quite happily on what's called felt course, 
the food of the landscape and that's rich in iron and so on if you know where to, what to eat and where to go they had their herds they often traveled with a few goats and some cows so they'd have milk so they're actually quite well off um, health-wise before they were chucked into these concentration camps when it became known by the last six months of the war it was a political disaster really they were totally incompetent. I mean, they didn't have toilets. When they put these people into these camps, they had tents and they didn't build toilets for 10,000 women and children. Some claimed, and many Boers claim, and Afrikaners to this day claimed it was um, ethnic cleansing to allow the Boers to die. The overarching answer, the big answer to this, is that it was not an ethnic cleansing. It became so when the blind eye was turned. Some of the politically expedient leaders did use it as an example for their own people to gain a few farms and bits of land here and there. But the actual policy itself was haphazard. It was generated by incompetent leadership who failed to moderate what was going on. And when the first stories emerged in the first months of 1901, they would blame the Boers themselves who said they didn't wash their hands, they had poor hygiene, they didn't know what they were doing, it wasn't their fault. So there was a typical, I suppose you'd say, British imperialist response to this is that they were the superhumans of the world, the God's chosen empire, and these Boers were lower than them on the chain of European purity, and they could not look after themselves, and that's why they were dying. So it was a cynical attitude that developed at the time. It wasn't a policy to kill all the Boer women and children. It was a real failure in many aspects. It did not work, and it actually, we believe, extended the war by at least six months Around five to 6,000 Boers just decided, well, we'll fight to the death. That was a disaster, really, for our country in many ways, because that bitterness, to this day, you can find it between English and Afrikaans. So people concentrate on black-white in South Africa, but we're a very complex nation. Despite their valiant efforts, by May 1902, the Boers were forced to accept defeat, and consequently, their territories were incorporated into the British Dominion of South Africa. This eventually gave rise to the Republic of South Africa. We spoke earlier about Paul Kruger, who obviously was a huge leader among the Boers when this conflict began. Since then, we've seen huge complexities in South African history. What is the view now, generally speaking, for good or for bad, when people in South Africa today look back at this figure of Paul Kruger. I mean, he's David against the, the empire's Goliath. He's still regarded as a man of honor who fought against overwhelming odds. His mistakes are swept under the table to some extent. He wasn't well-read. He was a man who only read the Bible. His whole life revolved around what the Old Testament pretty much said to him, not even the New Testament. He was biblical in his approach to most challenges and threats. So he had his weakness there in terms of just being unable to deal. He was an anachronism at the time. He made big mistakes when it came to dealing with the British. But at the same time, Afrikaans speaking South Africans see him as a person who was a man of his time. How can he face all these gold miners coming in from Europe who are changing the culture of the landscape around Kruger's Pretoria and Johannesburg, who want the vote? And we're going to vote the Afrikaners out, basically. They were swamped by these eight lenders, they call him outsiders and so because he was representing the you could say the indigenous white man if you can say that about south africa the africana there's strong feeling to this day that he you know he was hoodwinked by the empire 
he was fighting a losing battle, but he did it with honor and dignity. So that's how he's seen. He's not seen as a pathetic man of his time who led the country down into a war. Majority of people will see cricket. In fact, most South Africans, um, English or Africans still, and black South Africans, when they hear about Kruger's story, there's a um, begrudging uh, respect for him because in many ways he was fighting a kind of colonialism, um, an empire that wanted the financial power of particularly the gold and the fact that it was an entrepreneur, a coastal entity that could protect the Indian jewel in the crown. He was here was this person fighting what he saw as his people against that. So that kind of resonates more broadly than just the color of his skin or even the language he spoke. Uh, most South Africans, when they hear this story, have a fair amount of um, respect for him. Uh, he's not just written off as that funny guy with the black hat. <laughs>